Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Instead of asking what people do, Jenny Feinberg advises us to ask people what they're working on, what they're struggling with, or even what they need help with. That's one of the core ideas behind the quiet tribe Jenny's building with her pop-up co-working community, Makespace. Jenny took her background in feminist theory and political science and applied it to the real issues she saw in her community in San Francisco. In this interview, Jenny tells us how she incorporates rejection into her process, how she makes a space that welcomes both introverts and extroverts, and how owning her own shortcomings helps her delegate more effectively. To start, I asked Jenny how she characterizes her mission and what she's working on. Generally speaking, I'm helping to cultivate creative courage. Wow, that's very broad, and it certainly leaves for a lot of questions. <laughs> Precisely. So I do it through a number of channels, one being building a community in San Francisco of folks who are proactively pursuing, whether it's freelance careers, entrepreneurship, becoming an artist. And I'm very sensitive to make clear when I say that is it's not people necessarily always doing it full time. So we've got a ton of people in our community who have these dreams and these desires to pursue things as a side project. And we want to make sure that there's space and support to do that as well, because it can be particularly challenging to sustain that momentum when you do have a full-time job that's otherwise sucking your energy. You know, I can imagine. And I'm feeling that there's a trend these days toward moving away from full-time employment and more toward these independent careers. Yes, I think, especially in the Bay Area, people are frankly really burnt out of the commute. It can just be so demoralizing sitting on a shuttle or a train for hours on end. My friend recently quit his job in Mountain View and to move to a San Francisco job and said, I just got back a month of my life and calculated all the time he spent on the shuttle in a year, in a year span. I was just like, that's crazy. So yeah, I think that there's an undercurrent happening right now of people really desiring to have agency over their attention. And I am writing a book also, which is one of the other portals, how I'm cultivating creative courage. And it's about the ingredients that allow one to be brave and to step into their capacity. And one of the things I write about, one of the things I've learned in working with so many folks who are taking back control over their nine to five, over their schedule, is that the quality of their time and the things that come into their mind and their framework during the day are actually more valuable than money itself. So the attention itself being a currency seems to give people greater joy to actually be able to dictate and, and normalize as opposed to like not having, like basically surrendering. When you go to an office, you're on call and have to rise to what the higher ups need from you. And that, but you know, you're going to get that consistent paycheck every two weeks. It's becoming clear, particularly with my generation, that that's just not enough. It starts to lead to like a lot of existential questions and a lot of wondering about what our purpose is and what our capacities are. And it's a really interesting time to be exploring those questions. I think it's particularly interesting that your generation, the millennials, are starting to realize this so early in life. It sounds more like a lesson that people come to at the end of a long career. Well, so I have a theory about this that I haven't quite written about yet, but I kind of call my generation the eat, pray, love generation. 
And Elizabeth Gilbert published the book 10 years ago when many of us were graduated from college, in college, or have recently graduated. And yeah, so I call my our generation the Epray Love generation because there really has been this churning and this questioning that's been happening really only in the past 10 years that's been so broadly advertised and discussed. And I, it's created this like huge self-help industry and all these life coaches and folks trying to help you find your purpose. You know, I'm a little bit skeptical about a lot of that stuff. I am not super keen on capitalizing on people's discontent. I think it can be a little bit questionable. So what I try to do is hold and create spaces where people who have those questions and have those yearnings and callings can at least explore them so that you know there's a place and a space you can show up to where other people are there in the midst of the struggle trying to also figure these things out and that is really sacred time and space. So that's kind of what I see my mission as being is not so much making any promises to people but giving you the gift of time and space which are many times very, very valuable assets in, in scarcity. That is a huge challenge to take on, but I love that you've approached this from a feminist perspective. And when you were talking about the Eat, Pray, Love generation and the way that you interpret it, my mind went immediately to Betty Friedan and the feminine mystique. I'm sure you've made that connection as well. It feels to me like a renovation, a, a rebirth of the feminism of the 70s. Well, I love that you're saying that Gloria Steinem is my role model. I mean, in addition to studying politics, I also studied women's studies in college. So I was always trying to meld the gender dynamics in our society with the way that women are perceived and the way we perceive ourselves. And I was especially focused on the question of ambition. How sometimes the version of ourselves that we see and that we anticipate, we don't always have the confidence to meet. And we don't always have the power to know how to get there and to ask for help. So after 10 years of working with women, specifically on the local level, to run for office and to overcome some of their obstacles in really finding their power and stepping into what their purpose can be, I realized that the issues that many women and many people face around ambition is much broader than just to the political space and is much more relevant to exclusively working with political candidates. So that was like very much a huge influence in starting MakeSpace, starting our creative community. We are like almost 80% women and that wasn't intentional. They say your vibe attracts your tribe, but we do find that when you look at co-working spaces in San Francisco, and honestly, a lot of coffee shops do, they are really overwhelmed with men. And so we're still trying to understand what that means and why women haven't necessarily found safe spaces where they feel comfortable working. I was curious about that because I know that particularly with your, your feminist orientation and what you've been working on, the work you're doing is supporting in the tech community and a lot of tech workers are involved in what you're doing. But there's been a lot of controversy in the, in the tech community about exclusion of women or women feeling alienated. Yeah. And I mean, I could launch into a whole diatribe about it. I don't want to go too far down this path. But what is interesting around this is that I have found that the media's perception of the tech culture is very, very different than how it actually is. And we almost start to subscribe to a story around what was the dying old bohemian San Francisco and what is the new you know, tech bro. And it's often so focused on the extremes that we don't realize that most people are pretty closely in the middle, that people who you know, work for themselves, who are artists and freelance, tend to be highly entrepreneurial and really hustle. And people that work in tech are still highly creative and have their own dreams and pursuits. So I think even the narrative around how women are treated and, and how we perceive that can be self-perpetuating. And I think that 
instead of trying to, in my particular instance, instead of trying to necessarily work within the system and change it, which is what I did in politics, I'm interested in shifting culture in San Francisco outside of the tech world and almost defining what our counterculture is instead of complaining what our culture has become. We're at a very, very critical time where we have almost all the power to truly determine the San Francisco we want to live in. And one of my favorite economists, Charles Eisenstein, always says that a renaissance comes after a breakdown. And what we're seeing is this old order in San Francisco has died. And that what we used to believe and know and understand here is no longer the case. And we can mourn that or we can use it as an opportunity to explore and to ask people how they want to live and what they want to live and what principles we want to abide by. And that's how countercultures tend to become real. I think that the co-working spaces and, and the types of organizations that you're working in, people don't recognize the values that are coming out of those places. I've been talking with people who do co-working spaces across the country, and they're talking about how important it is to build community first and then build the co-working space around that community. Well, honestly, and yes, that is what people say. What's really challenging in the San Francisco real estate market is you don't always have the luxury because it takes so much time to build community. Community is predicated on trust. So it's actually counter to everything we stand for in the tech framework of pace and, and iterating and breaking and hacking. And it's like we're kind of encouraged to do things really quickly to decide if they're going to succeed or fail in the Bay. And, and that's not how you build community. You build community through having multiple invitations, multiple opportunities for people to come up, continuity, consistency, opportunities for people to connect that couldn't otherwise be planned. And so, yes, there are some co-working environments that are really focused on that. I have found generally there's more of like a we work mentality, which is like, let's buy a building and get people to pay for desk spaces. And because the real estate's so high, the desks are so expensive and it tends to be a lot of companies who are pretty siloed. So I actually don't feel a real sense of belonging or welcoming in most of the co-working spaces I visited downtown. And there's so many of them. And that's why I was really focused on building more of an ethos and more of an experience that could be translated to multiple different spaces. And I primarily try to keep our events in the Noe Castro mission area as well, because there is definitely a need and there's a ton of people who work independently in this area of town. I like that you characterize it as events. I think that's very different from the way that co-working spaces would talk about a desk for a period of time, but instead you're creating events where people are getting together. Yeah, it's or an experience. We've called it a gathering as opposed to an event, so it doesn't feel like there's super high pressure. We really do cater towards those who are more on the introverted side or ambiverted, as I like to describe myself. So an event sometimes can be a little triggering if you have any degree of social anxiety. But yeah, it's something that has a novelty to it. That in co-working spaces generally, there's a consistency in where people sit and who's going to be there. So there's not as much opportunity for serendipity to take place. Whereas with us, we have a list of about a thousand people. And on any given day, we'll have between 10 and 40 of those people show up. So there's almost like you're willing to take a chance. And there's like kind of a fun, there's a novel element to it that makes it fun to show up to. So you have this concept of the quiet tribe. And I'm curious how that plays into what you're talking about. Yeah, so Quiet Tribe is meant to be a gathering that encourages draft form, that when you show up in a place, often a networking event in San Francisco, there is often a pressure to have to pitch yourself and to have to describe your accomplishments. And that is the opposite of Quiet Tribe. Quiet Tribe doesn't care what you've achieved. Quiet Tribe is curious about what you're working on right now 
and what your struggles are and what your challenges are and how the community itself might be able to help you because it stemmed out of a lesson that I had. I worked for a political tech startup a couple years ago and when they ran out of funding and we all abruptly lost our jobs, I had freedom in my professional life for the first time ever. And it wasn't unlimited freedom. I, I had some savings I could milk for a period of time before I found a new job. But what I learned during that period of having abundance and openness was that I actually needed to create constraints within it. And I needed to get out of my own head because I was reading all these books and I was writing and I was like in this really creative intellectual flow that I'd always wanted to have and that I was really dying to cultivate. But it's not unlimited. It's actually very limited and you can really burn out and feel really isolated when you're doing your own creative pursuit. So what I developed, this theory, and what I learned is that every time I was not thinking about my own stuff, every time I was sitting in a coffee shop and a friend was opening up to me or asking me advice and whatnot, I discovered that not only do I give them better advice than I give myself, but also I was reinvigorated with what my value is and what I'm capable of offering people, which you're not always see when you're just working with yourself and by yourself. So that's really the principle of Quiet Tribe, It's and that's really what holds us in the community, why we call it Make Space, is because it's not actually about making space to work, it's about making space to take space from the work. So how did the business model of what you're doing right now come about? Because it's not the sort of thing that just appears automatically, and it seems like there's a lot of process and a lot of intention that goes into every step. When we started Make Space in beta form about a year and a half ago, we organized the gatherings as donation-based. So we would create an open space because it's a pretty unusual concept having pop-up co-working and it's taken a long time for people to wrap their heads around what it actually is. But the notion was that how do we create an elevated coffee shop experience that you don't want to sit in a sterile office, you don't want to sit home alone. What's the middle ground? What's And you don't want to sit in a coffee shop where you're an anonymous stranger with unreliable Wi-Fi and loud music and you might not be able to get a plug for your computer, blah, blah, blah. So there's a lot of anxiety associated with leaving your house too, even though it might be excruciatingly lonely. So we created this like spa for your brain, if you will, that had tea and chocolate and nice music and incense and everything that really felt like a yoga studio, but a place where you're going to get your work done. And people would show up and they'd sit the whole day and they'd have coffee and tea available and they'd have snacks. And when I asked them to donate what they thought the experience was worth, most people gave between $20 and $25 because they're like, this is generally what I'd spend sitting in a coffee shop all day. And except the difference being that they didn't feel pressure to have to buy something. It wasn't like contrived or an obligatory expense. It was more just like a, you pay a cover when you come in and then everything's available to you. So that's what we did for a dozen events. We made it kind of a sliding scale donation request. And then after a dozen events, about exactly a year ago, we launched a crowdfunding campaign and we encouraged people to sign up to be members. And so we're able to generate some runway to last our first year, which actually got us through the next hundred events. And that was the point at which we no longer made the events donation. We did charge between 20 and $25. And anyone who had bought a membership on our crowdfund would get a $5 discount every time they signed up. So the 20 to $25, I think just by comparison to co-working spaces, that's a very reasonable rate. It is. I mean, it's comparable. If you do a drop-in downtown to a co-working space, I think it's usually around 25. The difference is that you're an outsider going into someone's inside. So there, I don't think there's a much, much of an emphasis on really including that outsider in the day-to-day. -day. In fact, you might really just be paying for space and paying for a desk. But just a few months ago in 2016, what we started to do was 
move our pricing model into more of a subscription model. So to actually price it more like a gym. So people didn't have to think about the transaction every time. I had gotten some feedback that people really wanted to wake up in the morning and get a bunch of work done. And then come afternoon, they'd get into like a slump and they really wanted to come to make space and get the energy of other people working and be part of the experience. And they weren't sure that they could justify spending the amount just for a couple hours in the afternoon. So when I got that feedback, I changed two things. One is I started having the events go longer so that actually we, we pretty much gather for 12 hour days now. So if you want to sleep in a little and start your work day late and still get eight or nine hours and you can, or if you're the kind of person that like works in chunks and wants to have a few really efficient hours, but maybe between like three and 8 PM. So that's the beauty of working for yourself is that you've kind of broken up and blown up the nine to five model. And there's 168 hours in the week. So you can determine which of those 40 to 80 you work best in. And I often find myself working a lot of evenings and weekends and then taking off a random Tuesday to go hiking. So people take more ownership over the space and feel like they're paying a percentage of our rent and feel really entitled to participate in a way that's meaningful to them. So that was really the dream all along and it's coming up on the one year anniversary of our crowdfund. So it's also like just exciting timing wise. I like that the community is coming together and feeling like they're a part of what's going on. And I'm curious what you do to encourage that active participation among members. Sure. So it's a very delicate balance because I'm really sensitive to, I call it contrived connection. I'm from New Jersey, so I'm kind of an edge. You wouldn't know from all the yoga and spiritual work I've done, but I am somewhat of a skeptical person when it comes to like icebreakers and exercises, like get to know you stuff. I like to develop connection and relationship as it develops organically. So on one hand, I would say I do nothing. I actually let people kind of feel their way out and feel awkward and like find the people because keep in mind, it's a very self-selecting audience of people who subscribe to our vision, which tends to be somewhat maternal, somewhat nurturing, more of like a spiritual feminist element. So it was kind of cool to discover really early on that some people are totally not into what we're doing and just want generic co-working and other people are like, I've been looking for this forever. I've needed a community-oriented art space. So that was cool. On the other hand, we do have some very subtle norms that do create more of an opening, and that being kind of what you cited in the beginning, which is the rule is do not say to someone, what do you do? We find that that's really limiting with regard to getting to know someone because then they just start spilling out talking points and say, I associate with this company. These These are my responsibilities. And you kind of box them in. It's like, okay. So we encourage people to say, what are you working on? Because what that is, is an invitation to share whatever you're working on in that given day, which might be related to how you make money and might not at all. So if you want to jump into something that's like really burdening you or something that you're really excited about, something related to your personal life, it's an entry point by which you can show a piece of yourself that can have a degree of vulnerability, but also just authenticity just to go there and you can sense right away if someone like wants to go there with you or if they're like okay that was more information than I necessarily needed and then you just you know call it a day. I love the emphasis on the present tense what is happening right now in my life as opposed to this abstract concept of who I am. And it goes back to this counterculture question I have around San Francisco that one of the reasons why so many of us are feeling burnt out of the city or over it or whatnot is because it has gotten very transactional. And it has gotten very title obsessed. And it was such a breakthrough when I lost my job because I loved my job and I was really proud of my job. And people would ask me, what do I do? And I felt really cornered. And it can be scary when you're in transition, even if you're in transition by choice, to not have an immediate title or company to identify yourself with can feel 
kind of icky. So I started an experiment where I came up with 10 different things I did all at the same time. And I would say different things to different people just to feel the reaction. And it's amazing. It's like, and all these things are true. I'm a writer. I'm self-employed. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm unemployed. I babysit. I'm an artist. And so these things come with such connotations that lead one to ask certain questions or judge or be impressed. And it's so silly. It's so silly because you are whatever you want to be. And that was a joke we always had in politics that you can like titles are free because now I'm the director of this community management or the vice chair of this committee. It's like, whatever. Especially in these days when uh, the typical tenure at a company in, in San Francisco is about two years. And so everybody is constantly in transition from their current I am a this to my next I am a that. I think it's the biggest elephant in the room in tech too, that so many people are not really that happy. They're kind of there thinking that the company promised that they were going to change the world, but really their job is to get people to click on ads. And I mean, no offense if that's your job, but the fact that people don't stick around very long, particularly in this town, I think is really telling us something. And I think we should really pay attention to because it takes like a year or two to even your stride in a job. And to really understand the people dynamics. And if the people are changing over and the company's growing so quickly that you don't really get a chance to find yourself and find your place. When these companies have this pressure to scale and to grow and to show to their investors that they are having the leaps and bounds that they need. And the people sometimes can be lost in that process or the mission itself can be watered down. And really what I've learned in writing my book about the creative process is that is counter to what the creative process requires, which is really time and diligence and repetition and pace and patience. So that to me is the core tension happening in our community right now, that people have this desire to express themselves and to be creative and to put their voice into the world, but we feel this pressure to show our day's work on Instagram. And if it takes a year to create a, produce a single painting that you're proud of, how do you justify spending a year painting? It's like the ego like flares up and I'm actually experimenting with this right now because I've just started painting again after years of wanting to paint and buying paint supplies and really missing that element of myself. And I've been making a ton of bad art. Good for you. Good for you. Bad art is always the first step. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, but I feel the ego flaring up being like, this is shit. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, and I'm going to do it anyway. And I'm going to just paint and just feel intuitively like what colors and some of the things I'm proud of and some things I'll post, but it's like, that's not the point, you know? And it's really, really hard to get out of that mindset when I, everything around here seems to be like kind of having a, an attachment to ego. I know one of the things you alluded to earlier is, is how San Francisco itself provides some unique challenges to trying to build a business like this. And not the least of those is real estate cost. I'm curious, how are you dealing with that? And are you in one location? Are you in multiple locations? Are you borrowing locations? How does that work? Yeah, the space itself that we have had to make for MakeSpace has been definitely the biggest challenge in the entire life cycle of this business. So basically, I had the commercial space on Divisadero I was in love with and wanted to sign the lease on, which would have been about a half a million dollar commitment, which is not an amount of money I have available. <laughs> so it was a really scary leap of faith, which I ended up ultimately not getting the space. I had a potential investor and both of the things fell through. So 
when my plan A fell through and still had like so much momentum of people interested in my concept, we decided we would launch as a pop-up space and that we would find underutilized space to activate during the day. So whether it was a restaurant that wasn't open till dinner time or a photography studio that didn't have a booking that day, we've been super creative around finding spaces that would serve the needs of our customer. Now keep in mind, because it is an Uber of a coffee shop, if you will, and people are spending 20 to $25 to be there, I am very sensitive to the space itself, natural light being the number one factor I look for, but also location and ergonomics and just general environment coming in. Like, is there a lot of fresh air? Does it feel nourishing? And so it was definitely a very, very hard challenge to both meet the factors I want, ideally get the spaces virtually for free or as close to free as possible. And it's been really, really, really remarkable how lucky we've been in being able to like pop up now over a hundred times in various places around the city. We've been in over two dozen spaces. Right now we have a space that we're in quite a bit in Noe Valley that tends to be more of a the permanent space to answer your question. But we do still kind of consider ourselves a pop-up community. We are mobile and we can gather in many of the different spaces. And the best place we've definitely found by far has been a cooking school on Dolores Park called 18 Reasons. And we are there on a lot of Mondays. So that's been an incredible partnership. And we really stand by what they stand for, which is building community through learning and through shared space. That's exciting. And I like that you're taking spaces that are typically thought of as being used for one purpose and one purpose only. And similar to you know the difference between what am I versus what am I doing, these spaces are now doing something else. I always say I have a 92% rejection rate. So I've asked so many people to open up their space. And usually people are like, what? Co-working? What? Like freelancers, hippies? I don't want them in my space. And the people who say yes, which has been, you know, two dozen of them after probably hundreds of asks, totally get it. And it's like beautiful. Like there's a specific restaurant in the mission called the Tradesman's on like Mission Petrero border, which I highly recommend. It's an amazing restaurant. And Zarin, the owner of the restaurant, not only had this grander vision of what the space was going to be, but really almost resents the fact that unfortunately like restaurant culture is very transactional, right? It's very much like you go in, you get food, you have an opinion about the food, you have an experience with the food and your people, you pay for the food, you leave. You don't really get to like hear from the owner himself or the, the manager, like what they envisioned when they created the space and trade. The reason I bring up tradesmen specifically is because Zarin built the space. He is a tradesman. And so every piece of furniture and every element of the space was very carefully figured out and built by him himself. So like he takes so much joy in being able to see people use it. And so that was another one of our favorite. We were there about four times over the past year and we love working out of there because it's like he built a skylight and he built the chairs we're sitting on and it works out really well from a business perspective because when we take up the space, when it's otherwise sitting empty, there'll be like cooks prepping in the back. So, you know, there'll sometimes be smells and sounds coming out of the kitchen, but always good ones. And, but the moment they open by four or five o'clock, the space is now full of people for happy hour. So it's been a really good opportunity in the sense that we are bringing people to businesses that they might not otherwise know about. That's been really fun for me also, even though, again, getting a lot of rejections from people that don't want us in their space, but Usually it's set up where people are like, let's try it once. And we've always been invited back after they try it once, having a bunch of quiet, clean people in their space with computers. Like they don't even really need to clean in between. We're just sitting there, you know. But I like to say it's like being a tourist in your own city, that you get to discover places and spaces that, to your point, you'd have a different relationship with. Or it's a completely 
new air, part of town or a new restaurant that you've never thought to try out. And suddenly you're there, sitting, you have a positive association because you did your taxes in there one day, or you had a breakthrough creatively one day, or you met someone really interesting. Yeah, and San Francisco has so many places to explore. It's such a diverse city to begin with, and that survives despite whatever's changing in the culture these days. I wanted to get back to a point you mentioned, though, this 92% rejection rate. I think a lot of people have a real resistance to getting involved with anything that is going to lead to rejection. And in fact, that stops people from moving forward in the first place. Is that something that you had to struggle with to begin with? One of the reasons why I am tentatively in the live your dreams industry is because I think it's really dangerous to give people the advice to quit their jobs because we don't know where they're coming from. We don't know what kind of financial debt they have, what family backgrounds they have. And I, again, lost my job. I didn't quit it. So my circumstance is very unusual in that, yes, I felt this call. Yes, I had this concept of an idea whose time has come, but I wasn't so confident to do whatever it took to get there, right? So there's been this kind of like gentle leaning in on my end too, which is that I've been kind of like experimenting. And because my background's in politics and community, I don't really have a business background. So there's also been a huge learning curve for me to understand how to build something. So I'd say to your question, which is a really good one, rejection was really, really hard for me in the beginning. And it was really like demoralizing to like put your dream out into the world and like have so much attachment to like how many likes it gets or whether it's received or someone responds to your email. But what I learned very quickly is that people show up when they need it. So, so much about business is not personal. And that's taken me a really long time to accept and overcome, which is that if they don't reply to your email, think about all the emails you haven't responded to. Like we're all doing the best we can. It's not about you. And someone might literally not need pop-up co-working because they have an office they go to every day or they pay for a co-working space. On the other hand, I've had people not reply to my emails and sometimes repeated emails and then circle back with me seven months later because they had this discovery that they really wanted to start writing about their travels from when they were in their 20s and need a space where they can be accountable and where they can achieve flow. So it's like all of a sudden they had some breakthrough. They're like, wait, wasn't there that person who was working on that creative space? And like, because of the 8% of the yeses I've received and because of these incredible relationships I've established, like 18 Reasons and like Tradesmen, it generates a sense of hope and it generates more of a, almost a surrender around knowing that people are going to tell you no and things are not going to work out. So I still to this day do not know if my business itself is going to be successful. And again, from a San Francisco point of view, the pace at which we have grown and scaled is pretty small. It's community. So we make more money every month. Our community and attendance is increasing, but it's not by leaps and bounds. It's not in the way you would write up in an investor deck. So will it ultimately be a sustainable business to which I can pay myself a livable income and pay my staff member? That's nice. If you can dissolve the success-failure dichotomy that we live in, it has absolutely been a success outside of purely financial means because I've connected with hundreds of people who I wanted to meet. They've connected with each other. Businesses have launched. People have fallen in love. Like crazy things have happened when you create the space with an undercurrent and ethos of permission. And when people really dive in and dig into the things that they most want to do, when there's that container that permits them to do it, it's been remarkable. So if I were to end at our 113 gatherings, which we've had thus far, I'd feel wholly satisfied. And so that's like, for me, like the most important predictor of success and why I continue to tolerate all of the rejections, because it does still feel intuitively like it's leading somewhere. 
So how does your routine work out on a typical basis? I mean, you're running your own business. You're not answering to anybody else. And sometimes it's hard to keep yourself motivated to move forward. I know a lot of people have said that. I'm curious what your routine is like and how you keep yourself going on a day-to-day basis. Totally. So, and this is actually what my book is about too. It's called The Art of Making Space. And so the year of, the two years now of researching the creative process and learning how to overcome resistance and blocks has ultimately been a process of writing the book that I need to read and to understand what it means when you don't feel like working and what it means when you feel anxiety. So the biggest learning I've had and the thing that I take with me in my day-to-day is assessing, I call it the strength surrender spectrum. So it's assessing when you don't feel like doing something, kind of stepping back and observing why. And is the best, most nourishing thing you can do for yourself in that moment to show self-respect, to push through, and to like be like, all right, keep going. Like, this is hard, I know, and this is going to push you, but that's the point. You know, you wouldn't have signed up for a journey of solopreneurship if you didn't think it was going to be hard. On the other hand, is there this tendency towards workaholism such that how many hours have you already worked today or this week? Maybe you're tired. Maybe you should stop and actually pick up tomorrow so you still have some momentum to get back to your work. And then the middle ground is making space, is maybe stop for 20 minutes and go for a walk around the block and get some fresh air and to talk on the phone. So my learning and my process is when I ask myself in the morning, how do you feel? And again, goes back to the design that we have in the space. How introverted or extrovert are you feeling? Are you in a sales mode? I have days where I'm on my email all day and days where I don't touch it. Like I am not, I'm feeling more of like my creative intellectual side. I don't have the bandwidth and I'm not great with email. My email habit and behaviors are not ideal, but I think people kind of just get used to it. Like I'm not a doctor. So very few things are life or death that I found that I have to respond to. So I, once I reframe my relationship to communication in general, that's really been a saving grace. So yeah, so the biggest learnings being assessing kind of where I'm at, really observing when I feel resistance and blocks and knowing if it's, you don't want to be too indulgent either. You don't want to take space every time you don't feel like doing it. So when it's like appropriate to keep working and push through versus not. And then finally, I'd say the best thing that as far as balancing the burnout tendency when you're running a business is writing my book, is having this creative side project that's complementing my work, that's very much generating a lot of the marketing and content that is for my business anyway, but it means I can take an entire day sometimes off of building MakeSpace to work on my book, which ultimately always significantly helps my business and improves my point of view. And it just has this like intellectual thread that many founders and folks don't always have the bandwidth to give themselves to do. And to me, it's been essential because I only started this business because of initially writing a book, because initially trying to discover the elements of the creative process and of our creative resistance. All the research showed me and all the the work I did around discovering the essence of discovery is that space and community are the most important things. Having a sacred space and having a container of people where you belong, where you're accepted. And every book says this, And no book says how. No book says how to find your tribe, how to find the people. And these vague suggestions to me weren't tangible enough to translate into action. So I had to do it myself. I had to discover if I could find the people who are hardest to track down, which are creatives. I had to discover if I could build my quiet tribe and build the spaces and experiences where I could be my best self and dive into the creative work. And that's really been the learning and the journey. It sounds so. I'm surprised to hear actually that the book led and then the community followed. It sounded to me originally like the book might have been something that came out of the work that you've been doing in the community. 
So was writing the book really the thing that drove you forward with this? Yeah. I've never had an ambition to be an entrepreneur. I've never, I never necessarily even envisioned myself running a business. You have these like visions and you have these dreams. I, I always desired to be kind of like almost in like an academic ivory tower sense. Like I want to be a thought leader. I want to understand and, and really dive into the research and, and around what I'm learning as creative community really being my niche and having examples and stories and experiences to drive that theory and to drive those learnings are definitely critical to it. But what it does is it makes me not that attached to the outcomes. It makes me have an element of surrender around how the business is doing, knowing that we have really, really good days and months and sometimes it's slower. And when it's slower, my tendency is to feel, oh shit, like really devastated. And then when I look at the dynamics of like, why are certain people not showing up? And what has shifted, it's like, oh, I'm going after some of the busiest people in San Francisco. I'm going after people who are in transition many times, don't have a ton of excess resources and are working for themselves and trying to build something. And so they're not always, they don't always have the privilege to spend all day like sinking into a creative flow or coming to work in our space. So yeah, that's kind of the transition point in the question I'm in, which is my book is really far along now. So I have to decide if I'm going to self-publish or look for an agent. I'm really actively and openly looking for more speaking gigs. So I just did a TEDx, which I'm excited will be online soon. And I find that I'm most in flow when I'm doing public speaking. And I actually discover things about my process and about what I've learned when I'm put on the spot in that way. So I'm really, really excited to share a lot of these learnings and then to continue learning from them, like having the work feed the work and be self-generating. Yeah, coming into business, not being oriented as an entrepreneur, it sounds like what you've really taken is your training and ambitions in politics and applied them to community organizing in a business context. Precisely. One of my mentors is the mayor of Oakland, and I ran her first campaign for city council six years ago. And, you know, through working with her and through working with so many other women candidates, I definitely learned how to mobilize people around central principles and goals and how to get a lot of people excited around a, an idea. Although on a campaign, you raise a ton of money and you spend it all. So there's definitely have to be a shift around sustainability and around momentum that I was not trained in doing. And so has brought a profound humility around what my skill sets are and what my limitations are and how to call in for help. And that can be really hard for women to do and really hard for me to do to not only identify where I need help, but also know who to ask for and know when I need it. So who helps you with what you're doing right now? Is this really a one person venture that you're working on or do you have a team of folks working with you? So my teammate Meg has been kind of the backbone of the organization. We met a year ago when she was graduating from Cal and she was just looking for a summer internship. And as these things go, you know, now she's our community manager a year later. So she's been pivotal to it. So it's really Meg and me primarily, but honestly, it's the tribe. It takes a village. Like I have people within the community who have different levels of expertise. So people advise me on my business model. People help me with the marketing, you know, with some of the tech pieces that we're less familiar with or less skilled in. And I really think the biggest lesson of all of this has really been bringing the humility to the learning that there are certain things I do well and that I'm good at and certain things I'm not. And I remember reading something about how a very high percentage of founders and CEOs have learning disabilities. And basically what the article was talking about is when you have such a clear understanding of your limitations, you have no shame or resistance in getting people like delegating that out and getting other, like if you're a slow reader, get someone else to read the article and give you the high level points. So I remember that something shifted for me when I read that. I was like, oh, huh. 
I've always been trying to hide the things I'm insecure about or overcompensate for them. Why don't I just own them as part of my narrative? And like, I'm self-aware enough to know the things that make me insecure. Why not put that out there? You know, it's almost like a failure bio, if you will. Like, here's what I'm good at. Here's what I'm not good at. And getting people to supplement that. And like, I'm not invincible and I'm not perfect. And once you get out of a perfectionist framework and let other people help you along the way, you then can really excel in the things that you are good at and really and really focus on that, which has been such a beautiful shift for me. That is a fabulous tip because one of the challenges I know I hear from entrepreneurs all over the place is I don't know how to delegate. I don't know how to let go of a thing that I think I could do or that I need to learn how to do myself or I'm the only one who can do it exactly the way that I want it done. But looking at it as part of my narrative about who I am is these are the things that I let go of. I like that. Yeah. It's a learning process for sure. Pema Trojan, one of my favorite spiritual teachers, says that interrupting our destructive habits is a work of a lifetime. Oh, interesting. Cool. So I'm always a technology fetishist, and I'm just curious about what tools do you use to keep things organized among the folks who are working on this? Our favorite tool is HiRise, the CRM, which I used in my old company. I've used a lot of shitty CRMs. And I love Highrise. I love that you can BCC. They have a Dropbox element of it, which is unrelated to Dropbox, the company. I don't know if they just did that before Dropbox was around, whatever. But anyway, there's a BCC tool where you can basically copy every communication right back to the CRM, which I love. And it also syncs with MailChimp. So that's one of my favorite tools. We actually honestly don't have too many systems because we try to not overly complicate things. We've managed all of our reservations up until now through Eventbrite, which has been remarkable. And for a free platform, they are so generous in what they offer. You can basically have an organization page, which lists out all of your upcoming gatherings and events. And so we kind of use that as our calendar. And there's an integration both on our Facebook page as well as our Wix page. I would say one annoyance with the Wix integration is it only shows the next three events and not the full calendar of events. So we're trying to improve that as we speak to have something that's a little more holistic. But overall, that's been wonderful. It's been great from like um, an accounting perspective and keeping track of our attendance. What other tools do we deploy? Honestly, those are the two main ones. We use Celery for pre-orders. We sell our subscriptions through Celery. We're currently looking for a tool to set up recurring subscription because right now we've only been setting them up in packages and selling them that way. And... I think that's the extent of it. Like we're moving over to Asana slowly. We haven't used Slack yet. I am a little bit tech resistant only in that I'm easily distractible. So I'm aware of the more pop-ups and apps I have, the less work I'll get done. And it's really, really, really bad for my creative process to constantly have pings called the ping and I. It's like constant like interruption. So I actually try to limit my tech use as much as possible and try to have as many things flow through email and messenger apps. Well, we'll be sure to share information in the show notes about where people can find you and how they can get in touch. Thank you so much for joining me and for sharing your story with the listeners on Hack the Process. It was great to be here. I'm really grateful. You had great questions. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.